Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. Welcome to 2022. Getting started towards the end of the month here. Yeah. Uh, We're a little busy, a little bit. We've been well, but you know, uh, New York City is kind of ravaged by Omicron and it takes a lot to make silly jokes when things are not great. Today, we thought we'd react to something, a uh, topic, I don't want to say near and dear to our hearts, but uh, <laughs> a topic of perverse fascination, I would I would suppose, mm. to our hearts and the hearts of, of many others like us. You may have heard other content about this, but we could not help ourselves when when I, uh, I pitched Karen this idea. We're going to be discussing the uh, Jordan Peterson resignation level uh, letter why I'm no longer a tenured professor at the University of Toronto. Karen, any thoughts before we begin? Yeah, so I think it's important for listeners who may not be too familiar with Jordan Peterson. We'll have a bunch of resources in the show notes for some background. Highly recommend the ContraPoints video essay from a long time ago (laughs) on... Jordan Peterson, if you're interested kind of in philosophically what he's talking about, this is really going to be focused on this letter. And it's helpful if you've kind of like watched the slow motion train wreck of Jordan Peterson over the years, no need for background, but having that background of this kind of slow motion train wreck happening, I think is is helpful to going into this conversation. Shall we dive in? Yeah. All right. We're going to, we're going to dive in here. And I'm sorry, I can neither do a Canadian accent nor a Kermit the Frog voice. So I'm just, he does sound like a Canadian Kermit. So please, please. I I think a a good tweet I have about this is that his biopic should be played completely normally, like regular laudatory biopic, but it should be, he should be played by Frank Oz doing the Kermit the Frog voice, but everything around it is all just serious biopic melodrama. I disagree. Okay. I think it makes him sound less dangerous, even though he makes himself sound point. less dangerous. That's a good but point. There's some um, critique here going on of, of, of the rhetoric of this Kermit the Frog voice. All right, here we go. I recently resigned from my position as a full tenured professor at the University of Toronto. I am now professor emeritus, and before I turn 60, emeritus is generally designation reserved for super attenuated faculty albeit those who had served their time with some distinction. I had envisioned teaching and researching at the U of T full-time until they had to haul my skeleton out of my office. I loved my job, and my students, undergraduates, and graduates alike were positively predisposed toward me. But that career path was not meant to be. There were many reasons, including the fact that I can now teach many more people and with less interference online. But here's a few more. I'm going to jump in. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... You can still teach if you're Professor Emeritus. You're still affiliated with the college. For most people becoming Professor Emeritus, you can still be a faculty mentor to graduate students and teach undergraduate students. So a career path is still possible. And worth pointing out, this was a resignation or a partial resignation, like early retirement, but not retirement because academia is weird. So I do really want to push back that that he's now unable to do any of those things. Nothing he's done makes him unable to do the things that he says that he loves about his job. Let's hear a few more. The reasons, number one, is that he can teach many more people with less interference online. So there's many more than that, apparently. Mm-hmm. Let's hear it. First... My qualified and supremely trained heterosexual white male graduate students, and I've had many others, by the way, face a negligible chance of being offered university research positions despite stellar scientific dossiers. Here's where I jump in. (laughs) Not just the heterosexual white male grad students, I should mention. Traditionally, I think for a long time, if you actually look at the numbers, 3% of people with degrees, PhDs, become professors. So even if they were all white, 
heterosexual male graduate students. And I hear maybe he's had many others. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I'm curious uh, what makes him think that uh, anyone's becoming a professor. And I guess university research positions, even less likely. To work at a research university in a university research position is a very, very narrow concept. And I would posit that working with Jungian psychoanalytic theory doesn't really set you up for a research career. It's it's fundamentally not a, a research field. Despite stellar scientific dossiers, let's see what what else needs to be said. This is just a weird thing about his word choice, and I don't know why he didn't just say resumes or CVs. Because <laughs> I suspect that if he could, he would. I mean, unless he's a bad writer. <laughs> what? Jordan Peterson overwrites things? No. Okay. All right. Well, let's yeah. find out I'm why. Curious. I'm curious, though. Yeah. Why it is the supremely trained heterosexual graduate students that are the only ones facing negligible chances? What do you, you what say to you, Jordan? Here we go. <clears throat> this is partly because of diversity, inclusivity, and equity mandates. My preferred acronym, D-I-E. Okay, so now this is Elizabeth talking. Usually it's diversity, equity, inclusion to prevent that, D-E-I, but he's going to make his D-I-E jokes because... He's Jordan Peterson. Okay, here we go. Back. You have to back say die. Die. Okay, back to the article. <laughs> These have In been a, a Kermit the Frog voice. Die. I can't do it. I can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> These have been imposed universally in academia, despite the fact that university hiring committees had already done everything reasonable for all the years of my career and then some to ensure that no qualified minority candidates were ever overlooked. No, minority. He has, he has the word minority. <laughs> My students are also... And, well, you know, I guess like citation needed for that, but okay. Right. My students are also partially unacceptable precisely because they are my students. I am academic persona non grata because of my unacceptable, unacceptable philosophical positions. And this isn't just some inconvenience. These facts rendered my job morally untenable. How can I accept prospective researchers and then train them in good conscience, knowing their employment prospects to be minimal? Let's go with your professional opinion first, Karen. I think that is a question for all academics to ask themselves. I actually think that this is a really good question. I think all professors need to ask, is the student that I'm taking on a good fit for what their understanding of their career is, what their career prospects are? And, you know, what kind of mentorship they need to get from point A to point B. I think it's a good question. I just, I don't really understand how it follows from DEI is the reason why. I don't think those two go together. And you know, what he's saying is that people who believe in DEI don't like him and that makes him toxic to his students' professional futures. But I feel like that's one of the most introspective things he's ever said, that he realizes that he's hurting people's careers because I do know that academics who you study under and who was your advisor does is something that people continue to talk about. Like when I was in grad school, one of my professors was like, well, my advisor won the Nobel prize. So, you know, that says something about me. And, and at the time I know I see you rolling your eyes, but at the time I was like, wow, I'm so lucky to be in a class with a guy who studied under a guy who won a Nobel prize, but looking at it from this light, it seems odd. And I feel like when he's saying, you know, like he's doing it for his students because people hate him for the wrong reasons. But this just kind of goes back to what you said about the scarcity of these jobs in academia that people maybe pick on who they know versus and, and, and someone's reputation matters more when there's less, more highly qualified people competing for the same small number of jobs. Well, yeah. And I mean, the academic job market's a mess. And we'll talk more about this as... Dr. Peterson writes more about specifically how diversity, equity, and inclusion has been integrated into the academic structure of universities. I would say that that may not be the entire reason why people may not want to work with Dr. Peterson and may have legitimate concerns about students who studied under Dr. Peterson. However, I should say, like, 
I think it would be biasing if you felt that a student of Dr. Peterson's was not capable of doing the work that they've they've done in their predoctoral studies, if they've done studies. Second reason. This is one of many issues of appalling ideology currently demolishing the universities and downstream the general culture, not least because there is simply not enough qualified BIPOC people in the pipeline to meet diversity targets quickly enough. BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color for those of you not in the knowing woke. This has been common knowledge among any remotely truthful academic who has served on a hiring committee for the last three decades. This means we're out to produce a generation of researchers utterly unqualified for the job. And we've seen what that means already in the horrible grievance studies disciplines that combined with the death of objective testing has compromised the university so badly that it can hardly be overstated. And what happens in the universities eventually colors everything as we have discovered. So, you know, we all know that corporate structures follow the all-powerful academic structure as their guideline. So definitely see about that uh, downstream effect on how the academe influences industry in terms of hiring BIPOC people. I should say that I'm being sarcastic for anyone who can't tell. (laughs) You know, industry generally drives markets, not academia. And hiring practices are, uh, you know... People in HR departments do not have PhDs for the most part. And a lot of, you know, C-suite people who are in charge of operations and people are not academics. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is there not being enough qualified BIPOC people to meet diversity targets is, is just not the case. I mean, when we look at representative statistics of diversity among professors, tenure track research professors. It's unclear exactly what he's talking about, but any academic position, if we like broadly define it is postdoctoral academic position. There's no statistic that shows that any academic workplace has any leadership that reflects the population of the United States in terms of diversity. So I'm not sure exactly where he's going with that. Does it mean that we're going to produce researchers who are unqualified? I thought this was about hiring researchers, not producing researchers. So producing researchers as students, as far as I understand it, he's able to choose his own students. I don't really understand that part. Is this a hiring committee or is this executive committee that takes on new grad students. Unclear. So he's talking about a few different things here that that bugs me. If he's talking about teachers and professors, it's not representative. If he's talking about students, why is he talking about hiring committees? If he's talking about both, which I think he is trying to at least without just like clear flow of ideas, that it doesn't really make sense. Researchers can be qualified and there's been, there are more qualified people than there are positions for everything in colleges right now. Funding cuts show we've lost a lot of positions. Every department is fighting this is for in Canada, funding. But there is austerity going around all over the world. So yeah, this is true both in the US and Canada with funding lines. So we've seen a lot of corporatization of colleges and the way that they're run. So I wonder if the issue might be funding public education and the financial structure of universities, which I'm sure is what he'll go on to say later in his letter, because this is very upsetting to him. I don't know what he means by the death of objective testing. I'm in a neuropsych program. We do objective testing. That's all we do. And objective testing is not objective. The, the literature is pretty clear on this. So it's just kind of a best we've got right now kind of thing. I think one thing that jumped out at me from that paragraph was when uh, he wrote Appalling Ideology. And it's really funny because I did not watch it, but I've I've read and, and listened to some commentary on it. His whole 
debate with Zizek was about what is ideology. Philosophy Two, Abigail Thorne had an, a second video about Jordan Peterson. There's there's two of them on that channel. Uh, the second video is called "The Ideology of Jordan Peterson," and she really tries to get at what is ideology. And to me, it's it's comical when people talk about someone else's ideology because everyone has an ideology. Everyone has beliefs and values that are important to them and goals that are reflected in the choices they make. But Jordan Peterson claims he doesn't have an ideology, which is just ridiculous and patently Isn't that false. the point of his whole first book? <laughs> I mean, he says ideology is bad, but everyone has, it's like saying opinions are bad, like values are bad. Everyone has those things. Fascinating. Are we ready to continue? I suppose that's what we've committed to. <laughs> so I took these next two paragraphs together. Okay, so I'll read both of them. All my craven colleagues must craft die statements to obtain a research grant. They all lie, accepting the minority of true believers, and they teach their students to do the same. And they do it constantly with various rationalizations and justifications, further corrupting what is already a stunningly corrupt enterprise. Some of my colleagues even allow themselves to undergo so-called anti-bias training conducted by supremely unqualified human resources personnel, lecturing inanely and blithely and in an accusatory manner about theoretically all-pervasive racist, sexist, heterosexist attitudes. Such training is now often a precondition to occupy a faculty position on a hiring committee. Need I point out that implicit attitudes cannot, by the definitions generated by those who have made them a central point of our culture, be transformed by short-term explicit training? Assuming that those biases exist in the manner claimed, and that is a very weak claim, and I am speaking scientifically here, the implicit association test, the much-vaunted IAT, which purports to objectively diagnose implicit bias, that's automatic racism and the like, is by no means powerful enough valid and reliable enough to do what it purports to do. Two of the original designers of that test, Anthony Greenwald and Brian Nosek, have said as much publicly. The third, Professor Maharazan Banji of Harvard, remains recalcitrant. Much of this can be attributed to her overtly leftist political agenda, as well to her embeddedness within a subdiscipline of psychology, social psychology, so corrupt that it denied the existence of left-wing authoritarianism for six decades after World War II. The same social psychologists, broadly speaking, also casually regard conservatism in the guise of system justification as a form of psychopathology. Was that a sentence? I mean, that second paragraph, like there's no, it needed an editor. Like he's putting thoughts, There's the, but it's not. In some ways, I agree. I think that a lot of DEI committees serve to maintain the status quo. I think the vast majority of faculty members are lying when they write diversity statements. And I think that a, a good number of them advise their students to kind of write to the test for any grant, for any funding, for any hiring committee, because, you know, it's literally a job interview. You, you give what is being asked for. This doesn't seem particular to die statements or to academia. I also think that the implicit association test is a, a strange and, and nascent way of empirically measuring implicit bias, uh, which I think is an interesting term. And I don't think it's particularly helpful. I do think human resources personnel are significantly underqualified to provide anti-bias trainings. So I, I tend to agree on that front. It's unclear then how it ends up being so pervasive. If everybody knows it's bullshit, then how is it what everybody's doing at the same time and everyone's so corrupted by it as a belief. It's very strange to me. Like the the I mean the to premise doesn't follow the conclusion. To answer that question seriously, I would say that he should read Jill Louise Busby's book. Because Agreed. that book tackles that question from the point of view of someone who did those trainings. But that's a critique from the inside. That's a critique that he would never countenance it's or listen. A critique to. of someone who knows what they're talking about. Exactly. 
But I mean, if you're genuinely interested in that book, I mean, in that topic, I would say to read that book and the title of that book. Also state Project Implicit, which has come from the Implicit Association test, is still headed by Brian Nozick. So I'm I'm not really sure. Like, yes, there's a lot of critique around social psychology in particular, around replication, because a lot of the attention called to replication issues came up in social psychology. This has been a conversation for years. Um, you know, the Center for Open Science is from social psychology and it doesn't just look at social psychology though in the replication crisis extends beyond social psychology but because reforms began in social psychology people really did a deep dive into the social psych literature and that's where we have been seeing things because we we decided to clean up our own house first and i say we i'm clinical i'm not social but i have strong ties to social psych psychological science i feel like is going through a bit of a reckoning but it doesn't mean that all studies are and what's kind of interesting about it is you know coming at empiricism with this critical reading around how we frame ideas sounds almost exactly like jordan peterson's definition of what postmodernism is so I just think that's a little funny. Right. And two things. Isn't the replication crisis, it's started in psychology, but hasn't it extended to other disciplines? Yeah. And the Center for Open Science has, I mean, preprint, it's all an ongoing discussion in all fields of research right now. Mm -hmm. And, And so we're kind of going, undergoing a lot of change in, in the structure of research because it's been very market-driven. It's been very industry-driven. And, and having industry perspectives on research about health or human condition is, is a complex set of uh, incentives because of a lot of weirdness in academia and funding problems. Again, mm-hmm. you get a lot of weirdness. So, I mean, that's, that's there. I don't really understand the gobbledygook that he wrote, but it's interesting that he really feels like the real problem in DEI is Dr. Banaji of Harvard. End of sentence. Right, right. Before (laughs) I go back to the article, I just wanted to kind of clarify my point when I was saying the the book was Unfollowing by Jill Louise Busby. And I, I would definitely recommend you read it if you are interested in a critique of those kinds of diversity classes offered in corporate America at a large scale. But the thing is, just because Busby was critiquing the way those classes are taught and the attitude that certain white people, even well-meaning anti-racist white people, bring certain very strange attitudes, especially attitudes around guilt and fragility into those classes uh, and onto her social media, thus the title Unfollow Me. Busby is not denying that racism or patriarchy or oppression, systemic oppression of queer people exists. The book is saying, this is maybe not the best way to address it. And maybe there's other problems we have to address as well. But I don't think that Jordan Peterson wants to hear that. I think he's saying that because there's problems with implicit association tests, therefore there's no racism or sexism. And that's that's ridiculous. But he's coming at it from a, a completely, I think, disingenuous angle there. I don't necessarily think that he's constructing the argument in that direction. And this is the problem with Jordan Peterson, right? He just says things and leads you to make certain inferences. And then when you make an inference, he says, I didn't mean that. Well, what did you mean? I mean, it's a career long gish gallop, but you know, when he says that he, he believes that implicit attitudes by definition cannot be made explicit. I can't tell exactly what he's trying to say again. I don't know how he's speaking scientifically in saying that implicit things cannot be made explicit. I don't understand what he thinks therapy is for then, particularly as a Jungian. I wonder if he's trying to reference, you know, collective unconsciouses in that statement that he feels that people's unconscious archetypes cannot be spoken to, but then how could you speak about them? It's an an Uruberus. The first book. Yeah. 
Right. If you, yes, exactly. If you can't talk about what's implicit, how are you going to write maps of meaning? Excellent. Thank you. Now I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's really unclear exactly what his issue is as per usual. Um, He thinks you can't make implicit attitudes explicit. He thinks IAT doesn't work, which he's right about. Well, to an extent there's, there's again, you know, it's funny recently in like a group chat that I'm in, somebody discovered the BEMSAX rules inventory and people were kind of posting their outcomes. And, and I was like, do you want me to be playful and fun? Or do you want me to talk about this? <laughs> um, and then I just kind of came back and person splained all over everybody. What's useful about these things is kind of the same way that horoscopes are useful for me, at least, is that like, yeah, the measures are probably not doing what they claim on the label, but the way you react to your outcomes tells you a lot about yourself. And when you look at your own reactions to things, you suddenly realize the implicit has now become explicit because you're talking about things you weren't talking about before. You gain what is called insight. That's how tarot <laughs> works. What's that? That's how tarot card readings work. Exactly. They're and so to get you talking. Yeah. Any kind of introspection is about insight. You know, the implicit association test may not be what HR made it out to be 10 years ago, but is it useless? No. And diagnosing implicit bias, that's automatic racism. I don't think that that's what it purports to do. I don't think automatic racism is a good term or a good way of kind of non-academicizing what implicit bias is. Implicit bias is not just about race, for one. I believe it began with gender, first of all. But regardless, like, people notice certain things in certain contexts. That's really what it's about. It's a very complex thing to study, and it's hard. Ta-da. You want me to take the next two paragraphs or one? or? I mean, the, the next paragraph, sure. Okay. Let's just do that one. Banaji's continued countenancing of the misuse of her research instrument combined with the status of her position of, at Harvard is a prime reason we still suffer under the die yoke with its baleful effect on what was once the closest we had ever come to truly meritorious selection. There are good reasons to suppose that die motivated eradication of objective testing, such as the GRE for graduate school admission, will have deleterious effects on the ability of students so selected to master such topics as the statistics, all social sciences and medicine, for that matter, rely upon completely for their validity. Five million things being said here. All the fault of Dr. Banaji is that we don't, I don't know why Dr. Banaji has to, I don't know what she has to do with GRE for grad school admission. The GRE is not an objective measure. And we've shown that statistically. with, With the SAT. I had the exact same score on both. I mean, it also probably matters when you take it, what classes you took before you took it, whatever. Anyway. Okay, continuing? No, I I still want to say one more thing. Go ahead. So, of course, Dr. Jordan Peterson feels that empiricism is the best way to examine statistical topics in social sciences and medicine. But of course, you know, at the time that we're recording this, we're like maybe half a week away from his interview on Joe Rogan's podcast where he talked about the research on vaccine efficacy and and safety. And wouldn't you want kind of the best empirical measure you can get with what you've got? And he kind of goes on this whole postmodern tirade of critical theory applied to medicine saying there's too many extraneous variables and you actually can't trust the medicine through objective measures. So it's kind of interesting that he's applying his dye yoke to medicine. But I guess that's not addressed in this letter, so maybe it doesn't count. And also bad, postmodern critical theory bad. 
Furthermore, the accrediting boards for graduate clinical psychology training programs in Canada are now planning to refuse to accredit university clinical programs unless they have a social justice orientation. That, combined with some recent legislative changes in Canada claiming to outlaw so-called conversion therapy, but really making it exceedingly risky for clinicians to do anything ever but agree always and about everything with their clients, have likely doomed the practice of clinical psychology, which always depended entirely on trust and privacy. Similar moves are afoot in other professional disciplines such as medicine and law. And if you don't think that psychologists, lawyers, and other professionals are anything but terrified of their now woke governing professional colleagues, much to everyone's extreme detriment, you simply don't understand how far this has all gone. So as somebody who does clinical practice with patients, I do think that as a clinician, I do anything ever, but always agree in about everything, everything with the clients, blah, 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 blah. It's a great sentence. I love his clinical practice. <laughs> but um, yeah, outlawing conversion therapy is, is a good thing. Homosexuality is no longer in the DSM and, and hasn't been since the 80s. To treat somebody as though they're not really gay, this is where conversion therapy is most commonly applied, um, is not empirically driven. It's almost universally religiously driven. You know, religion being an ideology, I'm, I'm confused about Jordan Peterson's lack of empiricism here. I mean, he's, he's told he Joe speaks Rogan scientifically that the Bible is the basis for truth and culture. So, yeah, okay. So, anyway, <laughs> you know, his right to believe, but conversion therapy should be illegal. And then also, another question about that, though. About, about, oh, about, the, about the, not about conversion therapy, but about the now woke governing bodies of, of psychology. So when the APA apologized for torture and racism and harm to indigenous communities, was that just because they were woke? No. Short answer. <laughs> you know, the APA notoriously left wing. <laughs> I mean, I know he's Canadian, but like there are similarly similar reckonings going on all over I'm just going to say the English speaking world because I don't know what's going on because I don't read that many of the other languages. The but, European yeah. diaspora. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's so much interesting stuff here. I mean, not accrediting a university clinical program unless they have a social justice orientation. I was going to look into like specifically what they're looking for there, but like, I, I think honestly, What's actually happening is probably the same thing as what we talked about in two paragraphs ago, that everybody just needs to write diversity statements now, um, and that's it. So I don't know. It is a waste of time, and most of the people writing them are full of shit. I'm not vying for an academic career, if you can't tell. I mean, this is interesting because I, I saw this TikTok the other day and it said something like, if you're a therapist, you're only as good as your politics. And I wonder if that that really depends upon who you're treating and why. Because like I've been helped very much by people who are kind of just like normie Dems. And it like, and I know lots of leftists that I would never confide my problems in. So I'm not sure about that. I don't know exactly. I mean, the way that you relate to the world and the way that you relate to individuals is very different than the way that you relate to your patients. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be a therapist. That's why I'm not a therapist because I don't know how to have <laughs> boundaries. I am, I am an extremely opinionated person with very strong views. I don't know if anyone here has noticed, but when I'm in a room with a patient, it's not about me. It's about making sure my patient can live the life that aligns with their values safely and happily. And it's to intervene on anything that is considered an illness and make it manageable for them in a way that makes sense for them. So, but that this is like clinical work. This is not something that I 
am qualified to fully dive into philosophically right now. But suffice it to say, conversion therapy should be illegal. If you'd like to continue doing conversion therapy, please put it in writing in an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com and I will forward it to the relevant authorities. And uh, I'm ready to move on. Just exactly what am I supposed to do when I meet a graduate student or young professor hired on die grounds? Manifest instant skepticism regarding their professional ability? What a slap in the face to a truly meritorious young outsider. And perhaps that's the point. The die ideology is not friend to peace and tolerance. It is absolutely and completely the enemy of competence and justice. Okay, I have to say something. Would he say the same thing about someone who's a legacy or a sports scholarship? I don't know. He doesn't mention that at all in this. So I don't think that's what he's talking about. I know it's not, but I don't <laughs> see the difference, right? He also, I, I mean, you there's know, people who I think you should college. manifest instant skepticism for legacy hires and admits, whereas people hired on DEI grounds, you can't hire somebody on DEI grounds. That's not a thing. They have to be qualified for the position to hire them. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. So when you ask, what are you supposed to do when you meet a graduate student or young professor hired on DEI grounds? I would say that'll never happen. So don't worry about it. But if it did happen, I don't think you should manifest instant skepticism about their professional ability. I think you should think about how to make your program welcoming to them. If you're going to ask a question, I'll answer it. <laughs> you should probably reflect on the ways that your skepticism might be an explicit expression of an implicit bias you might have. In fact, that's that instant skepticism, I would say, is your explicit bias. And for those of you who think that I am overstating the case or that this is something limited in some trivial sense to the universities, consider some other examples. This report from a Hollywood cliched hotbed of liberal sentiment, for example, indicates just how far this has gone. In 2020, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences the Oscar people. See, science. <laughs> Imagine there being science to art. Okay, going back. Embarked on a five-year plan. Does that ring any historical bells? To diversify our organization and expand our definition of the best. They did so in an attempt which included developing new representation and inclusion standards for Oscars to hypothetically better reflect the diversity of the movie-going audience. What fruit has this initiative offspring of the die ideology born? According to a recent article penned by Peter Kafer and Peter Sedavnik, but posted on former New York Times journalist Barry Weiss's Common Sense website, and Weiss left the Times because of the intrusion of radical left ideology onto that newspaper, just as Tara Henley did recently vis-a-vis -vis the CBC, we spoke to more than 25 writers, directors, and producers all of whom identify as liberal and all of whom describe the pervasive fear of running afoul of the new dogma. How to survive the revolution? By becoming its most ardent supporter. Suddenly, every conversation with every agent or head of content started with, is anyone BIPOC attached to this? And this is everywhere. If you don't wait, see wait, it- Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so I do, I really need to say. Yeah. Consider some other examples. You didn't give any other examples before you said this. Where was the first example? There was no example. That is my frustration. What number I think one. Is, is, is funny about this is that I know someone who does some consulting maybe with some people who wrote that statement with the Oscars. And I said to this person, are the Academy Awards really mad at Jordan Peterson this week? And this person said, who? Sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> no, they I really had no idea. They did not know. I love this parenthetical. And why is left the Times? Because of the intrusion of radical left ideology into that newspaper, just as Sarah Henley did, vis-a-vis -vis the CDC. Like, oh my God. Right? Just, One sentence at a time, Jordan. I'm just jealous <laughs> of my friend who'd never heard of Jordan Peterson and is never going to think about him again after um, <laughs> conversation. I think it's funny. I'm so jealous. <laughs> uh, but of course, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? Why are you leaving your college because Hollywood people 
25 people in Hollywood said that they're liberal, but they don't want to do something wrong. And also, isn't this just capitalism? Like if movies with people of color sell now and they want to make them, isn't that just supply and demand? Isn't that how the market works? I have no idea. And no, it's definitely not because of explicit bias and implicit bias. But the idea that any of this happened because of implicit bias rather than right on the surface is revisionist history in the first place. So this whole thing is bunk. It has nothing to do with DEI in my understanding. I mean, I guess it's because they did a five-year project, which sounds a lot like something that people who make bureaucracies do. No, it's because of Mao. Look, any project that is five years in a time frame is officially Maoism. Mm -hmm. But anyway, (laughs) what does this have to do with resigning from U of T? What does it have to do with that? I don't understand. Anyway. And this is everywhere. And if you don't see it, your head is either in the sand or shoved somewhere far more unmentionable. CBS, for example, has literally mandated that every writer's room be at least 40% BIPOC in 2021, 50% in 2022. We are now at the point where race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual preference is first accepted as the fundamental characteristic defining each person, just as radical leftists were hoping, and second is now treated as the most important qualification for study, research, and employment. So this reminds me of um, a video that Thought Slime did called Conservatives Can't Be Funny. And it was about this guy, this complete asshole of a comedian who did this sketch where he was saying that the left and the right are the same because a leftist saying that race and gender are an important part of a person's identity and lived experience is the same thing as a neo-Nazi saying your race is the most important thing about you. And like, no, those are not the same statement at, at all. But from this guy's kind of like above it all edge bro thing, they're the same statement. I feel like Jordan Peterson is falling into that same trap here. Yeah, duh. I mean, but this is also just like standard false equivalence nonsense. I don't really understand what's happening at CBS. And I don't understand what that has to do with why Jordan Peterson's leaving academia. Again, I just don't see it, which I guess means my my head is shoved somewhere far more unmentionable. I see you pretty clearly on the Zoom screen. So I don't know about that. It's shoved oh, into it's- a computer monitor on the internet. <laughs> I've mentioned it. Oh, no. <laughs> It's shoved into the dragon mother, which we can't see because it's one of the archetypes. Okay. (laughs) Do not bait me. (laughs) I see what you're doing. (laughs) Uh, Maybe maybe the the rest of the article answers some of your questions. Need I point out that this is insane? Okay, wait. We were just saying this was insane. Even the benighted New York Times has its doubts. A headline from August 11th, 2021. Are workplace diversity programs doing more harm than good? In a word, yes. How can accusing your employees of racism, etc., sufficient to require retraining, particularly in relationship to those who are working in good faith to overcome whatever bias they might still in these modern liberal times manifest, be anything other than insulting, annoying, invasive, high-handed, moralizing, inappropriate, ill-considered, counterproductive, and otherwise unjustifiable? I would just say go back and read Jill Busby's book. I don't know if you've got anything else. Just asking questions. I didn't say they were high-handed and moralizing and appropriate and ill-considered counterproductive and otherwise justifiable. It's a question. I'm just sparking conversation, some thought. And if you think die is bad, wait until you get a load of environmental, social, and governance scores. ESG, purporting to assess corporate moral responsibility. These scores, which can dramatically affect an enterprise's financial viability, are nothing less than the equivalent of China's damnable social credit system applied to the entrepreneurial and financial worlds. 
CEOs, what in the world is wrong with you? Can't you see that the ideologues who push such appalling nonsense are driven by an agenda that is not only absolutely antithetical to your free market enterprise as such, but precisely targeted at the freedoms that made your success possible? Can't you see that by going along sheep-like, just as the professors are doing, just as the artists and writers are doing, that you are generating a veritable fifth column within your businesses? Are you really so blind, cowed, and cowardly with all your so-called privilege? This is just ridiculous because you can measure your greenhouse gas output. You can measure your pollution. You can measure environmental remediation. Well, is this, this is bullshit? Well, also, I don't know what this has to do with DEI at universities. I don't know what this has to do with his partial retirement. I don't know what this has to do with anything. This is a market score so that you can be put in like ethical vanguard investment portfolios so that people saving for their retirement can be like, I would like to not have TIAA invest my retirement money into like Monsanto or something, you know? It's mainly just porn and weapons actually that are outlawed by those. Those aren't as good as you think. You have to really look into what the requirements are. As someone who's been burned by this, it's like that's, that's it, like good information. Guns. And what about let's talk fuels? about that when we yeah. stop recording? Actually, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> you should definitely. Well, but that's what the thing is, right? So there are criteria that those banks use for what's a socially responsible investment, but you shouldn't assume that it means the same thing to you as it does to the bank. Just find out what criteria the bank is using. But that's what I don't understand. Like, again, this goes back to really the logic of capitalism in that this is a way to prevent greenwashing. Um, it's it, this, this kind of environmental, like social scores. Or do greenwashing. Right, right, right. This is a way to kind of say we're not greenwashing. Like, here's the standard that we're using. And that standard is, of course, arbitrary. Policy paradox, Deborah Stone, shout out. They're saying this is the standard we're going to try to live by. And here's how we did. That's so how dare there be an objective measure. Right. But he's saying that that's just like China. So you can't measure racism, but you can measure pollution. And that's what it's, it just boggles the mind that he's comparing these things. You can well, I mean, you can measure much... downstream effects of racism. Exactly. And you can measure how, how, you know, there's environmental racism and that black people and indigenous people are more likely to live in an area with polluted air or water. Particularly but... in Canada. Exactly. But that that's not a bad thing. I thought he wanted rationality and it's rational to measure all of these things to try to unless he's saying that pollution is a good and he's denying climate change. To me, this just seems like he's dancing around climate change denial for literally it's no really, reason, I guess. In, in case someone I don't wasn't know. sold on the racism and the transphobia, he's going to throw in climate change denial too. Well, it's nonsense. Right. And is he for or against objective measures? He doesn't know. He's for them, except if they're going to prevent climate change or at least not contribute to climate change. But in the same way that it sounds like he wants a postmodern approach to climate change. He's applying critical theory to ESG scores. So because most people on the right, when you talk about mitigating climate change, they'll say we can't do that here because China won't. But that's not true because China's building a lot of renewable energy plants. But just say that that was true. We'll say, okay, we're going to have these ESG scores. No, that's too much like China. What? Like, makes sense. He refuses. Taking a deep breath here to continue. <clears throat> and it's not just universities and the professional colleges and Hollywood and the corporate world. Diversity, inclusivity, and equity, that radical leftist trinity is destroying us. Wondering about the divisiveness that is currently besetting us? Look no farther than die. die. Wondering, <laughs> wondering more specifically about the attractiveness of Trump? Look no farther than die. die. When does the left go too far? When they worship at the altar of die and insist die. that the rest of us yeah. must want to be left alone, do so as well. Enough already. Enough. Enough. Finally. Do you know that Vladimir Putin himself is capitalizing on this woke madness? Anna Majar Barducci at MEMRI.org 
covered his recent speech. I quote from the article's translation, the advocates of so-called social progress believe they are introducing humanity to some kind of a new and better consciousness. Godspeed, hoist the flags as we say, go right ahead. The only thing that I want to say now is that their prescriptions are not new at all. It may come as a surprise to some people, but Russia has been there already. After the 1917 revolution, the Bolsheviks, relying on the dogmas of Marx and Engels, also said that they would change existing ways and customs, and not just political and economic ones, but on the very notion of human morality and the foundations of a healthy society. The destruction of age-old values, religions, and relations between people, up to and including the total rejection of family, we had that too, encouragement to inform on loved ones, all this was proclaimed progress, and by the way, was widely supported around the world back then and was quite fashionable, same as today. By the way, the Bolsheviks were absolutely intolerant of opinions other than theirs. This, I believe, should call to mind some of what we are witnessing now. Looking at what is happening in a number of Western countries, we are amazed to see the domestic practices, which we fortunately have left, I hope, in the distant past. The fight for equality and against discrimination has turned into aggressive dogmatism, bordering on absurdity. When the works of great authors of the past are no longer taught in schools or universities because their ideas are believed to be backward, the classics are declared backward and ignorant of the importance of gender or race. In Hollywood, memos are distributed about proper storytelling and how many characters of what color and gender should be in a movie. This is even worse than the agitprop department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. This, from the head of the former totalitarian enterprise against whom we fought a five decades long cold war, risking the entire planet in a very real manner. This from the head of a country riven in a literal genocidal manner by ideas that Putin himself attributes to the progressives in the West, to the generally accepting audience of his once burned, once twice shy listeners. And all of you going along with the die activists, whatever your reasons, this is on you. Professors cowering cravenly in pretense and silence, teaching your students to dissimulate and lie to get along as the walls crumble for shame. CEOs signaling a virtue you don't possess and shouldn't want to please a minority who literally lived their lives by displeasure. You're evil capitalists, after all, and should be proud of it. At the moment, I can't tell if you're more reprehensibly timid even than the professors. Why the hell don't you banish the human resource die up starts back to the more appropriately named personnel departments. Stop them from interfering with the psyches, psyches of you and your employees and be done with it. Musicians, artists, writers, stop bending your sacred and meritorious art to the demands of the propagandists before you fatally betray the spirit of your own intuition. Stop censoring your thought. Stop saying you will hire for your orchestral and theatrical productions for any reason other than talent and excellence. That's all you have. That's all any of us have. He who sows the wind will reap the whirlwind and the wind. So he's saying he agrees with Putin here. Yes. For three paragraphs of literally just quoting Putin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that last one, I wasn't sure if that was Peterson or Putin, but it, that was him. That whole thing about uh, yeah. about Shakespeare isn't being taught anymore. That's just Vladimir Putin's agitprop. And so that's an, a, all quoting Putin until this from the head of. So with, who he agrees with, it, it, I'm so confused what we're supposed to take away from this. That that Vladimir correct. Putin is the leader of a country that was destroyed by communism. So he's the one easiest to spot it in other countries. And we should be aware of the creeping Marxism, else we'd be destroyed like the USSR was. There's a really good book about Putin called The Road to Unfreedom by Timothy Snyder, and it's about Putin's specific brand of Marxism. It requires a little bit of philosophy and some concentration to get through, but it's really amazing. And if you want to understand what Putin actually believes and who he believes he is and what he believes about God and the nature of power and the role of government and kind of the unique brand of Russian fascism that's going on over there, I highly recommend it. So how would you say that that applies to Jordan Peterson's kind of whole cloth agreement with 
this multiple paragraph quote? Oh, because Peterson is just getting suckered in. Like, this is all propaganda. This is all Russian propaganda. And like every government has propaganda. There's American propaganda. There's Canadian propaganda. There's Russian propaganda. And that he is 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 writing this this letter of resignation that clearly to me has his ideology. He ends what? It, he ends it with quoting propaganda from another country. And uh, although the Oscars might not know who Jordan Peterson is, I think Putin would think this was hilarious and delightful. I mean, it it just doesn't. The conclusions don't follow the premises. There's a lot of questions with answers that are not evidence-based. This is a classic Jordan Peterson joint. It would be funny to like just pick out all the questions that he asked and have someone just answer those questions. I feel like a lot of the answers are just no. <laughs> and I do really want to say the only JBP I want to read in clinical psychology is Jack Limby Persons. Yes, that is a clinical psychology niche joke, but I would say that I can't imagine any other psychologists agreeing or not agreeing. I, I didn't, I don't remember if I said I can't imagine or I can only imagine, but I've ruined my own joke. <laughs> That's okay. You know, it's, I read this when it was published about almost two weeks ago. Now we're recording this on January 30th and I completely forgot the Putin part. <laughs> I, I, I my mind just blanked it out. I just did right. Yeah, you read it yesterday. <laughs> I completely just forgot that part because it was just too horrible to comprehend what he was saying. I really hope that there is not a war. But if Putin invades Ukraine, how is this letter going to look? I don't like I really cares. don't want him to. I, want I don't think he cares. Peace. I don't think Jordan Peterson cares. He he wants the right wing. But his whole thing is like communism is bad because people died, right? But, but Vladimir Putin is good. But if he starts freaking World War Three, then does he want that on his history that his resignation letter quoted this madman? Like, he what the fuck? Care. I did try to watch uh, the serfs watching him on Joe Rogan. And uh, once I stopped laughing, I couldn't I couldn't concentrate. But he did say that category that culture is categories. And uh, I did once work in a cognitive psychology lab where we studied categories. And I, I don't think that's what culture is. Hmm. Um, I, I think that our brains are better able to make culture because we can conceive of categories, but that's not the same thing. Well, I'm sure if you said that to him, he would say that's not what he said <laughs> in response. <laughs> So, you know, I want to just call my old professor and be like, hey, what do you think about this? But I'd kind of be afraid. He would yeah, be on your board. old professor will be like, I, I don't feel like discussing this <laughs> because it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It is a waste of time. I, yeah, <laughs> I remember we're here wasting our time for our dedicated listeners <laughs> to make fun of them. But, That's you know, true. he wants people to engage with him seriously, but his writing is like this. And <laughs> it's very difficult. Like this. I mean, like this whole episode. <laughs> no, I know. I know that. No, I know that. It just goes everywhere. And he's worried about outcomes for his white heterosexual male grad students. That's the only thing that I think actually seems to make sense here. Mm -hmm. He's worried about white fragility. I think that's what he's trying to say here. Yeah. A loss of, of white he, male power. He's realizing that other people perceive him as toxic, but he won't admit why. He'll just say it's because they have a sick ideology of Marxism, not because of anything that he said or done wrong. But there's also just it like... It can't be him. He can't be the problem. Also, like, I don't know. What does the Cold War have to do with you quitting or partially retiring? Because of Marxism. Exactly. It doesn't make fucking sense. <laughs> no, it, does, it doesn't make sense. And he doesn't have an ideology, but the Marxists have an ideology. And that's, you know, why he's quitting. I don't think he said that in this, though. 
<laughs> that's like the worst part is like, even that's an inference because he can't actually even say that. He can't say things clearly. It's very frustrating <laughs> that this is a public intellectual. I mean, I wouldn't call him that. <laughs> Good. And no one should. No, no they shouldn't. Because the, the whole part of, of, of PsyCon and public intellectuals is to be able to explain things to people. And nothing that he says is clear. He makes what people feel smart. Here? He, he never does. An informal poll of people on the Oscar committee. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. He references the IAT, but not really in terms of research. It, it's so confusing. Why? I thought that this is going to take me a long time to really make sure that I have my ducks in a row because it's hard for me to remember academia drama. And there's a lot of academia drama around the open science movement. And I was like, okay, I really want time to prepare where I can kind of communicate what's going on with the IAT and open science. But I actually don't have to go into that because he doesn't actually talk about it. It's a placeholder for die to him. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. Again, it's what is he trying to say here? And I think you articulate it so much better than he does in so much in a much more concise way than he does. Um, oh, which part? That he is afraid of Marxism as oh, an ideology yeah. Yeah. compared to him, who is objective science man. None of that makes any sense. But no. I, the other the last thing I wanted to say is that to, to reference TikTok again, I saw this really interesting TikTok about this woman who was talking about her father being a Jordan Peterson bro and the way that she was able to kind of convince him to stop watching and listening to Jordan Peterson was to have her dad watch this debate that Jordan Peterson had with Matt Dillahunty, who is like an atheist debate bro. And this only worked because her dad was like an atheist edgelord bro. And once he saw, and like, I'm going to, I'm going to use the, the, the youth's slang. Once he just saw how much Jordan Peterson was simping for religion, he was like, no, I can't watch this guy anymore. And I think what I find cowardly because he accuses writers and artists and CEOs and like literally every person on every discipline on earth of being a coward and being afraid of Marxism Jordan Peterson is a very religious man. He believes very much in the power of faith and he believes that people need to believe in God in general and probably Jesus specifically. However, he does not come around and say this. You have to pry it out of him kicking and screaming. And I feel like that's disgusting. Like if his faith is so important to him, he should be proud of it and he should talk about it openly. And that I find cowardly. Yeah, it's also common. I know that, but... If you think that people being religious is like the most important thing to society not collapsing and you yourself are religious and it's very important to you, but you don't like to talk about it because you know your audience doesn't want to hear that. How are you not just as much of a coward as the people who you claim are afraid of wokeness? You're I'm afraid sure of atheists. He has a 30 page nonsense response that calls everybody and their mother out as being cowards. But, but, and quotes Putin at length. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I know. I know. I'm just saying he's running from, from his own, he's running from the, the atheist edgelords from, and from the atheists. It's effective. It works. Of course, he's going to keep doing things this way. Right. He thinks that they're suckers and they are. Right. And, and also his audience who is more atheisty can just not, it can just choose to ignore that that part of him. Yeah, and we all pick and choose what we ignore mm -hmm. and what we focus on. Right. Our yeah. explicit associations are all there, mm -hmm. you know. Some of us have more insight. Do you have any so, further reading for people? Yeah. Uh, not prepared. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Put some Maybe links. I'll send you some stuff for yeah. uh, show notes. Mm -hmm. I, I'm done. That's all. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to our first episode of 2022. I think it went extremely well. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me like at uh, Karen. 
and have a good 2022. Hope it, hope it gets better than how it started. It's changing. The winds are changing for me. It's about a 12th over, but uh, happy February when you get to listen to this. And uh, we'll be back in your ears very soon. Bye, Coffee Pods. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.